one of you, everyone who, who is in this classroom to think about your lives and to challenge yourselves as to whether or not you have matured or are maturing. I don't think there's all, ever an end to it. I think you should always keep maturing. The question is, is have you been doing that in your Christian life? Not just your physical life. Obviously, we, we, we mature physically without really being able to stop it. Now, I'll say, I guess, chemically and medically, some people try to stop it with drugs and uh, Botox and, and other kinds of, of things. They try to, to cheat the physical maturity. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about physicality. I'm talking about spirituality. And that's what the focus I want us to have in the class this quarter is to be, is to look at our spiritual lives under the magnifying glass, under that microscope, so to speak, and challenge ourselves and question, are we doing what we should be doing in our lives? Now, before we embark, I think, on this trip of of looking at this book and and thinking about things, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever planned a vacation? I would say probably most of us have. Uh, What are some of the things that you do before you leave? Toss a a couple of those things out to me. What do you do? Get prepared. Some about toothbrush, I heard. What would you say, Jim? Get your extra toothbrush. Make sure you got that spare ready to go. What else do you do? Do what? Buy gas. You got to get prepared. That's part of the preparation, right? Make sure you got gas to get on the road. Who what? Money. Get money out of the bank, right? Got to be prepared with that, right? It costs to go on vacation. What else? Get a map. The map is kind of getting more toward the the part that I want to think about as we think about the book. The road map, so to speak, of of looking at a book is very interesting. Uh, Before I go on a trip, and me and Monica are a little bit more anal, I think, than most people, we actually have a, a whole list. We come up with a packing list. Now, I don't know if everybody does that or not, but when you got two little kids, it's funny. We actually have a saved list on our computer for packing for a beach trip because back, way back when we first started having kids, we would get on the road and remember we forgot something and had to turn around and come all the way back because the, the children, I think, just suck the brain out of you when you have them. And that's what I think happened with us. And Monica says that all the time. They took her brain, you know, and what she could remember and think about when she had babies. Uh, but we've got a list and this thing is broken down to what, what we do for the kitchen, what we get for the bedroom, what do we get for the bathroom, what do you get for the pool, you know, those kind of things. We got it broken down, you know, pretty, pretty intensely. Uh, we got a list to make sure what we got is there. And also, so we kind of think in our minds what we're planning for. When we went to uh, Washington, D.C. in 2005, uh, we went, that's one of the, the checklist things we wanted to do before we had kids. So we wanted to go to D.C. together, and Monica and I went, and we actually went with my parents and with her parents. And let me tell you, that's a trip when you go with the in-laws and with your own parents on a trip. Uh, you know, you used to think traveling with your parents when you were a kid is something, uh, traveling with them when you're older is even something more. Uh, dealing with uh, older parents uh, is just, it puts a kink in things, and there's no offense to y'all if you travel with your kids, but it's just, it's just different. And what's interesting as we planned for that trip is I actually became jokingly known as a tour guide and I've never been to well I've been to DC once but it was just on a trip to sing at the cherry blossom festival and we didn't really do a lot of tourism we didn't walk around we didn't stay in a hotel even it was a very quick uh, trip up there on a, a bus from uh, school but I actually started doing research digging in and planning kind of what events we could probably go to and get to what things cost money uh, where they were in location with the hotel that we had reserved and, and those kind of things. So I had really kind of dug in and planned for that trip. And still today, they, they joke about me being the tour guide, even though I wasn't a tour guide, I was still the, the tourist. Um, but, you know, you really kind of dig in and plan. 
you kind of look at it. Why? Because you want to know what to expect. You want to kind of break it down in your mind and think about it. That's, I think, very similar as to what you do here when you deal with planning for a uh, studying of the book. It's much like planning a trip. You want to make sure what you've got is those things that uh, are going to give you an idea of where you're going with the study as well as where you've come from in the study. And then also really what you can get out of the study. When I went to D.C., I wanted to make sure that I got the most that I could on that trip, right? So I tried to plan it in advance to try and think about those things which would help me and help the family get the most out of that trip and that journey to the the nation's capital. That's much what I want to do as we explore this morning here, the introductory lesson of of this book of James, is to think about those things which will help us get the most out of a study in the book of James this quarter. So real quickly, I want to look at really four questions to think about here because the, the book of James, as I've already said, deals with lessons so that the Christians would attain spiritual maturity. And if that's our goal in this study, if that's what we're looking to produce, spiritual maturity, challenging our maturity as a Christian, I want to kind of make sure we know where we're going and kind of look ahead and and look a little bit into the book, see who this man named James is, where he comes from, what was going on, a little contextual uh, look at this book as we embark on our study on the book of James. Uh, James 1 verse 4. If you look there in in the book of James, uh, the latter part of that verse there reads, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, of course, if you look at the context there, he's talking about letting the endurance, the patience manifest itself in your life. Why? Because ultimately, it's going to have a perfect result. Perfect, by the way, you can always, almost always substitute the word complete in Scripture uh, with that word. Because the word in the Greek is very similar to an idea of completeness. When you're complete, you're perfected. And so the idea there is to let these things be perfected, be completed in your life. Why? So that you are going to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so that's what we're looking for as Christians in our lives as well. How can we get there? How can we get to the perfection, to the completion as a Christian? Now, I know we always talk about we're trying to aim for perfection as Christians, that we may never be perfect, so to speak, because we still falter and fail. But the, the, the premise behind the idea, concept of spiritual maturity is that you are constantly growing and you're not stagnant there in your Christian life. And you think of the parallels in our physical lives. You know, babies, we can't stop them from really growing up, right? I mean, I think there's some of us mothers who would like to, well, dads too, I'd like to stop my children from growing up a lot of days. Uh, but uh, you just see them growing, and they, they mature. And when they're babies, you know, they don't need much more than the milk. They don't need much more than just getting fed those liquids. They have a, almost a total liquid diet. In fact, it takes them many months to even build up the ability to even start moving towards solid foods. And you get to that mushy baby food, you know, that's really not solid food yet. And then ultimately, you know, almost, it's almost like it takes a whole year, if not longer. I can't even remember the timeline now. But it takes a while for them to be able to sit at the table and eat solid food with the family. They don't stop. They don't stop changing. Nor can they survive on that liquid diet anymore. They need that meat. They need that more solid food. And we've got to think in our minds as well, we should not be satisfied with that milk. 
with that, uh, this very temporal surface type of, of information and maturity. We want a much deeper maturity, a much deeper understanding and meaning behind our Christian lives. Four questions that I want to look at here uh, in this lesson series as we uh, embark on this study uh, this morning. Four questions for us uh, here are first, who was James? Who was he writing to? Number three, why did he write it? And number four, I want to look at how can we get the most out of this study as we kind of bookend uh, this morning's lesson uh, here, this introductory lesson. Uh, I've got your handouts. You're going to be able to see most of my uh, comments, at least the, the bare bones of the outline there for you to take, study it even deeper, look at it even more intently, hopefully, as you go on this week. But really, I want to kind of look at these questions because they're going to give us an idea, somewhat of a roadmap, so to speak, as to what we're looking at here in this book. First question, who was James? If you look at the book of James, uh, it starts off in verse 1, which is really our verse for this morning. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And so you see the book begins itself like many other epistles do of the time, uh, actually telling who wrote the book. Uh, Unlike our letters of today, we usually put the the uh, name at the end, you know, sincerely, John Cackleman, you know, or in love or, you know, love you as I write on the cards to mom and dad. It seems like a lot of times, love you, Johnny, you know, you, you're writing your name at the end of the letter. Well, you don't do so in, in the New Testament letters and the, the way of writing back then was actually you started off. Why? The people want to know who's writing to them. I, I, I guess the uh, best way to explain it would be they didn't have the return addresses on the envelope. And so when you open up that letter, instead of having to flip through and you think this uh, James is five chapters long, if you were to write this out longhand, it'd be several pages in length uh, there, this letter to uh, those that have been dispersed abroad. And so they're starting off, wham, this is who's writing to you. And if you look, Paul's epistles do the same thing. It's very much a beginning of a salutations, a greetings, as well as the, the person who wrote the letter is really enunciated there for you. When you look at who James is, though, the question is, who is James? Who was James? In the New Testament, there's three, maybe four, uh, depending on the, uh, the discussion about James the Less, uh, that we are looking at as possible individuals named in the New Testament as being the writer of this book. And real quickly, I've listed them, at least i put some blanks there for you. You can fill in the blanks on your handout if you want. The first option would be Jesus, the son of Zebedee. And most of us know Jesus, uh, James, the son of Zebedee. Uh, James and John, of course, were called by Christ to be his apostles. You look in uh, the, the namings and the, the enumeration in Matthew and Mark and Luke and to talk about the calling of the twelve. James and John were two of those that were included. They were the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee, their father, was a fisherman, passed that trade on down to the, the brothers, And the brothers were actually called from their nets. If you remember the story of the calling of the twelve, they were called from their nets much like Simon and Andrew were. They left their nets and they followed Christ. Well, James, of course, is one of the apostles that is named very frequently in the scripture, talking about being with uh, Christ. Uh, Peter, James, and John were almost that infamous trio that went around with Christ. It seems like right at his, you know, right on his right hand side, everywhere he went. The Mount Tra- Transfiguration, who was there? Peter, James, and John. Uh, when you look at the miracles that were performed, James was there. Uh, the, the beginning of the church, James was there. He was present. Uh, however, if you look at the, the context of James and his life, as well as the dating of the book when it was written, uh, and also in combination with the fact of uh, his untimely death, James, the son of Zebedee, would not have been the writer of the book of James. 
he was a very prominent figure, obviously, in the early years of the Christ and his ministry. However, he was uh, beheaded, if you remember, in, in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 12. You see the beheading of James, and that was around 44 B.C., uh, I mean, 44 A.D., there after Christ. About 80 years difference there. Uh, 44 B.C., I mean, A.D., after death, after Christ died, uh, James was beheaded by Herod as kind of a statement to the early church. Uh, he was kind of made a, a somewhat of an example, supposedly by Herod, to try and intimidate and get the, the Christians to kind of back down. It obviously didn't work, but uh, James's beheading, of course, would be indicative of the fact that he would not have written this book, which was dated and is consistently dated around the 60s uh, A.D. Uh, so there's a lot of factors that factor in there, but James, the son of Zebedee, is most likely not the writer of this book. Now, uh, there's some people who may argue that he is, uh, and I'm not going to say that he is not 100% the writer of this book because we don't know 100%, but all the evidence that we see uh, seems to point that James, the son of Zebedee, was not the author of the, of the epistle of James. Second uh, option that we have with regard to James in the New Testament is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's also one of the called twelve, but he's one of those we really don't know much about. Uh, we do know he was, of course, involved with the apostles and all the teaching. He was involved with the early church because you'll read in the early part of Acts that all of the apostles were there in Jerusalem. So he would have been grouped in with these apostles. He would have been there in the early leadership of the church. Uh, however, there's just not much known about him in early church history. Uh, and in fact, uh, the early church historians don't have a lot to say about James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, they don't have a lot of stuff to go from in the Bible. Besides the groupings with when it says the apostles, it is uh, inferred that all 12 of the apostles actually were there and they remained in Jerusalem even when the scattering occurred in, in Acts chapter 8. So, you know, he was probably there in Jerusalem for a long period of time. And at what point he left is, is up to somewhat of a human history, not biblical history. Uh, but you do see him, of course, being called to be a part of uh, the 12. In, in the book of Acts, he was there when Christ was risen. He was there when Christ was uh, raised up into the clouds, you know, he, the ascension. So, you know, James, the son of Alphaeus, was an important uh, and a part of the early church. But all indications are that he was not the author of the book of James either, uh, just because of the lack of a lot of historical settings and, of course, the lack of acceptance by the early church fathers is the fact that James, the son of Alphaeus, was not likely uh, the author. Now, if you look in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, which is a verse I believe I put in your handout as well, there's another reference there in Mark of, of someone else who's the son of Alphaeus. And if you look, I found this is very just kind of an interesting side note here. But uh, Levi, in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, uh, also known as Matthew in the scriptures, uh, was also called the son of Alphaeus. So it's very possible uh, from the reading of this, we don't know if there's many Alphaeuses. <laughs> there probably were more than one Alphaeus in the, in the first century. But uh, from the characterization and the, the use of the surname of son of Alphaeus, it's very possible that actually James, the son of Alphaeus, was brothers with Matthew or Levi. So I think that's a little bit of interesting trivia there if you want to put it in the back of your minds for trivial pursuit. Uh, if you ever have that question come up, who else was a son of Alphaeus besides James? Uh, it's Matthew or Levi. And uh, so it's very possible they were family as well. Both called to be apostles very much like James and John and Peter and Andrew. Uh, it's very common as you look at the, the 12 that the relationships uh, were already established there. But more likely he was not the, the, the author. More than likely the author, as I said, 
there's another one, James the Less, that's referred to, I believe, once in the scriptures. Uh, and it's not really clear as to who it is. There's, there's debate as to which James that's referring to. I don't want to get into that debate because it's really a little bit um, outside the lines. So feel free to explore on your own. I think it's a good study to look at and, and consider. More than likely, though, the author of the book of James was James, the brother of Christ. And all of the historians, biblical historians and experts, go to this man as being the author of this book. Uh, it's a very interesting study to think about James, the, the brother of Jesus, actually being the author of this book as well as a leader in the early church. Because if you look back and think about who James was, and of course you got the scriptures there posted for you, but if you think a little bit about the history of James and who he was and what he did, he did not believe in Jesus Christ. He was his own brother. Technically, I guess he was his half-brother since Jesus was not literally the son of Joseph. Uh, he was an adopted so, somewhat, I guess, son of Joseph because he was uh, b- born by the Holy Spirit and Mary. So, of course, that gets into a little bit of family dynamics, I guess, there. He would have been Mary's firstborn, but there were other brothers and sisters that were born to Mary. And specifically in the scriptures, there is listed James as being one of those brothers that was born of Mary. Now, early on, in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, there is a distinctive uh, verse there dealing with the unbelief of Christ's brothers. If you look in John chapter 7 with me, you'll see here there's somewhat of an um, antagonistic confrontation between his brothers and Christ. And they, in fact, are trying to get him to go and, and show himself and show his works and wonders so that he can be known. And verse 4 says, no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world is what his brethren, his brothers were telling him. And you see in the follow-up there, verse 5 is really what underscores to me the distinctive change. I'm trying to get out of this. I feel like I'm in a spotlight. Um, I love the Lord's sunlight and all, but uh, when it's glaring in my eyes, it's hard to see. Um, You see the distinctive impression here of who James was, uh, because it says in verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. So from the very beginning and in the outset, James, the brother of Christ, did not believe in Jesus Christ. Hey, he didn't... I don't know if it's that they, they failed to see the miracles and the signs, or they just thought, hey, these are nifty tree, you know, you know, tricks. But they did not believe in Christ, even after Christ was performing all these miracles, signs, and wonders. Why? I, I don't know. It's not enumerated. We could probably speculate all day long as to why we think they didn't. Maybe they were jealous. Who knows uh, exactly what uh, one brother was thinking about another. But we know from verse 5, they were not believing in Christ. And you go on to see other times as well in Mark chapter 3, it's another passage dealing with his brothers, which would include James here uh, while Christ was doing his ministry. In chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, his mothers and brothers came and they arrived. If you remember contextually here, uh, this is after the 12 were chosen here in chapter 3. And then he goes down there and he starts talking to the scribes. Verse 22, they come down and they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebub. You know, this uproar that's coming about because the scribes were confronting Christ and saying, hey, you know, he's of the devil, he's of Satan, don't listen to him, don't believe him. Christ has a little discourse between verses 23 through 29, and then you get into verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, verse 33, Who are my mother and brothers? There was a relationship there, but obviously, I would say, a very strained relationship 
earthly relationship there. They really were trying to pull him out. If you really look at the context here, they wanted him to quit embarrassing himself and the family uh, there. And they were trying to get him away from all this chaos and, and the problems here. And, and, you know, of course, the statements made there, you know, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. And that's verse 35 there that you see uh, here. But they didn't believe in Jesus. They weren't supportive of him. They were not uplifting him. They weren't encouraging him. They didn't edify him one iota during his earthly ministry. And so we see James as being a very interesting character. However, on the flip side, in Acts chapter 1 verse 14... You want to talk about a change of heart. Here's a good example that I don't think we commonly think about here. But Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, what you see is those all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now think about that. They sure had a change of heart, didn't they? They didn't believe him. They discouraged him. But here you see in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, his brothers are mentioned as being in the upper room, praying with all the disciples there, staying together, devoting themselves to one another and to prayer. And the question is, is what happened to cause this change? I think we can probably speculate a lot of different things could have happened. I think it's very possible they saw their brother hanging in agony on the cross. Uh, I know it says that nobody was there with Mary but John, but that doesn't mean that nobody was at a distance or that weren't around it. They probably saw him go to the cross and be crucified. They were in the area, and that was their brother after all. I have a hard time believing they didn't see that happening. It could have happened. I don't know. The Scripture doesn't say. What we do know in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7, there is a verse that Paul points out and really is very specific and kind of stating a fact to us that I think commonly we kind of skip over as we're reading 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, a lot of times we're thinking about the, the, the proof that Paul's giving there for his apostolic position and the fact that he's got authority given to him from Christ. We kind of skip over, though, what, what he says in verse 7. Uh, if you think verse 6 is after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to... James, and to all the apostles. I think it's very interesting as you think about who James was to think that he himself saw the Lord, saw Jesus risen from the dead, made an appearance to him specifically, pointed out in the scripture by Paul here as being, I think, an important fact. James, what happened to James? I think he literally saw the light. And he realized that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was and was doing what he said he was doing. And imagine that incredible change that would have occurred to someone who actually finally realized that. In fact, the change was so great that James became what I would say is one of the most prominent leaders in the New Testament church that we see and read about in the book of Acts. Why do I say that? Well, most of the time you see a reference made to James like like Paul made in... um, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, calling him a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Groups James there along with John and with Cephas, which would be Peter. You see the idea that those three are seen as the pillars of the the church. And so very likely, uh, the James, they say that obviously is referred to there as this James, the the brother of Jesus, that he is seen and perceived as the, the pillar of the church. Uh, here in Jerusalem. Uh, You see in Acts chapter 12, another reference there to the fact that when Paul was going through his missionary journeys, uh, I believe that's the one where it says that he uh, reported first 
to, um, to James there at the church in um, Jerusalem. If you look in Acts chapter 12 and verse 17, a reference made there to Paul, I mean to, to Peter, and uh, the, the fact that, um, no, this is Peter coming out of prison, I'm sorry. Peter was jailed. We know that story about Peter being in prison. God got him out of prison and pretty much broke him out of jail. And he left, and his word, and, and what he said uh, is that, uh, verse 17, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And he left, and we went to another place. And so he wanted to make sure that, that James there knew he was a prominent figure. And over in Acts 21 is actually the verse that I was thinking about. is, is Paul there talking and, and kind of recounting his conversion. And in chapter 21, verses 18 through 19, is a recount of after, post-conversion of what happened with Paul. And, and in fact, he went away for a time period. He didn't go immediately to the church. We know why. He was, a, he was scared uh, for his safety, even there, the early church. And verses 19, uh, 18 and 19, he references here specifically saying, after he arrived in Jerusalem, verse 17, the brethren received us gladly. In verse 18, and the following day, Paul went with us to James and the elders were present and he agreed to them. He began to relate them, which uh, God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so the idea there is the account of Paul going and reporting to James and the brethren there. I got two verses mixed up and there's another verse that I don't have it written down here. I'm sorry. But where Paul actually, after his conversion, I think it's over in Galatians, talks about the fact that he uh, had gone to James after he was converted. Regardless, the verses all indicate James was someone of prominence among the church. He was a leader of the church at Jerusalem. I would say he's one of the elders uh, from my reading of the scriptures there because he groups him along with James and the elders or James and the apostles uh, there. And really the, the, the paramount, I think, crux of my argument would really rely upon Acts chapter 15. When you look at the reception there in Acts chapter 15 of, of the church uh, to the, the problems that they were encountering there, uh, it was dealing with circumcision versus uncircumcision, the Gentiles versus Jews issues. Uh, do we circumcise everyone that becomes a Christian is the, the question in Acts chapter 15. And what you see there, and I'm not going to read all 29 verses, but in Acts chapter 15, James steps up and somewhat facilitates and leads. He's the, the response that we see chronicled in the book of Acts. I don't believe he's the only one that spoke there. I don't believe he was the one and only leader there because if you read the passage, the apostles were present. And we know the apostles were very much outspoken uh, when it comes to someone like Peter or or John or someone like that who had been very uh, outspoken with respect to things. But who is quoted? Who who speaks up and and takes a stand, makes some uh, decisions? You see James making those decisions. And if you see this man, he is someone who is of, of prominence that, uh, that leads the church there. It's very interesting to see. You go from unbelief to belief to leader. And that's who James ended up being. He was someone in the early church that they could look to for guidance, that he could look, they could look to for support, and they could look to for leadership, true, true leadership. He saw it all. And I think that gives us a little bit of a basis to understand what he was saying and doing uh, here in this book. Who was he writing to? Real question. I mean, uh, real quick here, we get into this. I'm dragging a little bit, but I want to go as quickly as we can. You look in verse 1, which we've already read. James addresses his book to the 12 tribes which are dispersed or in the dispersion. Uh, some verses, uh, some versions say that a little bit differently. Uh, the New American Standard says 12 tribes which are dis- who are dispersed. I believe the King James Version will say to the 12 tribes which are scattered. If you've got that version, you're going to see the word scattered there. And so the idea here is, first of all, he's writing to Jews. 
You see the parallel with the word, the term, the 12 tribes, that means Jews. Uh, that would be definitely a distinctive um, allusion to the actual Jewish nation. Secondly, those that are dispersed would indicate outside of the Palestinian area. Acts chapter 26 kind of echoes this concept and this idea of the fact that there was a dispersion, that there were Jews that had left Jerusalem uh, that uh, James would have been writing to. And finally, it's not just Jews who left Palestine, but it's Jews who left Palestine who are also Christians. And the reason you know that is because the book in its context uses the word brethren or brothers, depending on what translation you use, over 15 times in the direct distinction of uh, these commandments given to the people and to these Christians. Uh, That's how you know they're brethren, because he refers to them as such. And so it's going to be those who are Jews, who are Christians, and who have been dispersed or who have been scattered uh, abroad. So you see the idea there that uh, there's an emphasis on the new births, There's a good example there in like verse 18, uh, the idea of being brought forth by the word of truth. So we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The idea of of a new birth, a new creation, echoing a lot of what Christ even taught in in John 3 and and other passages like that. The idea of a new person, the new birth is alluded to there. All going to the argument that these are Christians that we're talking to. And so as he addressed the Christians, he was going to look at those who were scattered more than likely because of persecution. If you look at the context and the history of the the early church, in Acts chapter 8, we know there became a great persecution on the church. Uh, Persecution uh, wasn't being involved in by none other than, of course, our own Paul, uh, who was later converted. But this this persecution caused Christians to to be scattered around and to go around. Uh, the, The idea of scattering, by the way, this Greek word, if you did a word study, would be somewhat of an idea of really kind of casting seed. That's the same kind of word used when you scatter the seed on the ground, like a farmer scatters seed. The same word and terminology is used there. I think that's very interesting to think about that idea, even though it's translated dispersion. It's the same kind of concept there, is that they are kind of spread out. And so what's interesting is you kind of lead that thought down the, its, its logical end. Those seeds which were scattered, they bring, bring, bring forth fruit. Very interestingly, when you see in the early church, the dispersion or the the persecution of the church that caused the Christians to be scattered actually brought about first fruits. It brought about uh, fruits from their spreading the word of God. If you look in Acts chapter 8, I love the idea there of under persecution and under all these testing and these trials, when they left the area... When they, you know, said, hey, we, we've got to leave the great persecution, it says in verse 1, arose against the church in Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, uh, except the apostles. And uh, the devout men, of course, then buried. At verse 4 is where you get to. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So they let persecution, they let tribulation, trials, temptations, a little bit of a foreshadow, by the way, for next week's lesson, lead to something much more deeper, something much more greater, and that would be the spreading of the gospel of Christ. And so you see here that they brought forth fruit after they had been scattered. In verse eight, now chapter 8, verse 4 of Acts, and Acts eleven nineteen kind of alludes to the same idea and concept that, that whenever those left, they went about their way teaching and preaching. They went around spreading the word of God. There were those who were converted because Christians had left the confines of Jerusalem. His instructions also, you see here, uh, address and help address needs and problems that the Jewish Christians would have had once they left. You think about the, the, the situation 
When Jewish Christians were leaving Jerusalem, they're facing multiple different issues and problems. One, they're Jews. So the greater amount of the world at that point in time aren't going to like Jews. Uh, there was a distinctive uh, negative feeling uh, of the Jewish nation. Number two, they're Christians. <laughs> People aren't going to like that either. In fact, that's what we see with being persecuted because even if the Gentiles didn't like the Jews, you still had the, the issues and the confrontations of the, the fact that they're not really even Jews anymore. They're Jewish Christians. Uh, they have a new identity. And that new identity just is not accepted or really even understood by those of the greater world at that point in time. Until the word spread, until others of the Gentile nation began to be converted and accepted in the church, there was an intense and incredible issue there uh, because of their uh, nationality and their religious beliefs uh, when they went out. And then the idea of what they were supposed to espouse became an issue and a problem for those Jewish Christians. That's what kind of led to the head of Acts chapter 15, that you had many people there who had these Jewish uh, beliefs, the, the foundations, the history there, and they were still trying to uh, pursue those things, to keep those commandments, when in fact those things weren't as important anymore. They were secondary. It's okay to, to recognize and maybe celebrate the, the day of Pentecost, but you celebrate it for a different reason now. The Passover means something different now. And the Jewish Christians didn't always understand that. It would bring strife from within as well as without. Uh, so you would see those things as that he wrote too. Why did he write the book? Third question, real quickly. Why did he write the book? Well, we've already talked about it. He, built, he wrote the book to encourage Christians as they dealt with problems in their personal lives and in their church lives as well. Temptations of sin were affecting them personally, but it also affected them collectively as a church body. And so you'll see those uh, commandments and those admonitions there being made. The problems began to plague the dispersed Christians. Uh, it discouraged them possibly and led them to have issues and problems. What was the common cause of the problems? These problems, by the way, are not different than what we have today. As we go through every one of these, do we have problems with our tongue, speaking and doing things, saying things we shouldn't be saying? Yeah, we do. We have problems with keeping money in its right context, in its right place? Yeah, we do. Do we have problems with dealing with trials, temptations, uh, those kind of things that enter into our lives, that, that test us, sometimes on a daily basis? Yes, we do. So the issues and the problems aren't much different there. But what's the common cause of the problems? Well, what I'd like to say to you is I believe that the common cause of the problems were really that Christians weren't growing up. They weren't growing up. They weren't maturing. And spiritually, they were not maturing. Because they were not maturing as Christians, they could not face these temptations. They could not face these problems in the early church. And so you see here the book of James addresses these problems. And in fact, you look at the problems that we're going to be looking at, some of these problems here in this context. You deal with impatience and difficulties, taking but not living the truth, no control of the tongue, fighting and coveting, collecting material toys. I mean, how many of these problems right here would you say uh, describe the problems that your children experienced? I would. I got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. I'd probably say every, every one of these right here would apply to them. So the, the problems that, that described and that plagued the, these Christians here that were dispersed and scattered abroad describe problems that children deal with. And children in the church here were dealing with it because they were not spiritually mature. Now one of the quotes that I, I had in one of the books is, too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. 
The members are not spiritual enough to eat the solid food that they need, so they have to be fed on milk. Of course, an allusion there to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. That's what we see. Sometimes I see it at Dalreda. We get caught up on issues and problems that really are those of more primal and, and primary concerns that we really should be moving on to. They're, I would say, issues of the heart. And those kind of concepts, and Dalreda is not the only one. I'm not trying to attack my own brethren here. It happens around the brotherhood. It happens in every church. It happened back in the first century where people get caught up on things that really uh, should have already been resolved. You should already accept things. Why? Because you're faithful, you're obedient, you're you're not kicking back like a child does anymore at that that, um, authority that God has in your life. Once you kind of solve those issues, you should be moving on to other things, more deeper meaning things, more impactful things as as Christians should and do. Uh, there's There's a Basic outline here of the book that the fact that there are the James shows the marks of the mature Christian. One is the patient and testing we see in chapter one, practices the truth in chapter two. Uh, a mature Christian has power over his tongue. Mature Christian is a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. And, and, and of course, the mature Christian is someone who's prayerful in trouble. And that's what we're going to see as we move toward challenging us to become mature as Christians in this study are these five main characteristics. And these things can permeate and help influence and change our perspective and the way we apply and the things that we do in our lives. How can we get the most out of this study? Real quickly, there's five things that I've listed here. Number one, first of all, you've got to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you need to be a Christian. You cannot become spiritually mature until you're spiritually reborn. So you've got to start out as a babe, and then you've got to mature. If you're not a Christian, the Bible's pretty specific as to how you become a Christian. You hear the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. You believe the Word of God. Because of your belief, it leads you to repentance. It leads you to confess in your life, as well as even verbally, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that confession and that faithful obedience is going to lead you to baptism. Acts two thirty eight. when they were pricked in their heart, what did Paul, Peter tell them to do? Repent and be baptized. There's an action that is taken upon that but makes you become a Christian. You don't just become a Christian just because you feel like it or because you believe. The scripture puts it all together. There's this puzzle of salvation is concluded whenever you become a Christian and are immersed. Now, your life does not end at that point as a Christian. That's where we're getting at now. That's, this is post-baptism we're talking about today. And the idea of being a spiritually mature Christian. You've got to be a Christian first. If you're not a Christian, you need to think about that. Because you cannot become a mature Christian if you're, if you're not a Christian to begin with. So those of you who may not be Christians uh, in this class, I want to challenge you. First of all, before you get to anything else, you've got to ask yourselves this. Am I a Christian? Because you've got to be a Christian to become spiritually mature. Second, uh, what else can you do to get out of this study? You've got to be honest. Uh, you must honestly examine your own life and our own lives. I'm including myself in this study because there's a lot of points that I'm bringing up that hit my head, that step on my toes, really step on my heart. But unless you examine yourself honestly and don't make excuses for yourself, you're not going to get anything out of this study. I'm just going to tell you now. You're not going to get anything out of it. Thirdly, what else can you do to get the most out of the study? You must obey God regardless of what the cost might be. There may be some things you have to give up. There may be some things that you cannot do anymore. If you want to be spiritually mature, you've got to tell yourself that I'm willing to give those things up. Number four, you must be prepared for extra trials and testings. Guess what? If you start becoming spiritually mature, guess what gets put on your back? A target. Not just a target for Satan, but a target for the world as well. Be prepared. If you want to be spiritually mature, 
If you want to grow in Christ, be prepared for more testings and trials. Christian living is not and is never supposed to be easy. And finally, fifth, the fifth thing to get the most out of this study is the idea we must measure our spiritual growth by the Word of God. Now, just to let you know, real quickly, as you look ahead and think about those things for next week, I'm having to skip a little bit here. But application in this lesson is a couple things. I've listed them on your handout, so I'm not going to enumerate them too much. But what you'll see on the right-hand side of your handout is a spiritual uh, health survey. Now, I apologize for the small text. You may have to get a magnifying glass out to read it. But what I encourage you to do is look at that test. We're not doing it in class. I want you to do it on your own because I don't need to know your answers. If you want me to help you, I'll be glad to help you. If you want me to help encourage you or hold you accountable, I'll be glad to do that. But you evaluate and survey your own life. And I would encourage you after you do that survey, you think about ways that you can change or plan and make goals to increase with those things. I will, I will attest and tell you those things that are listed on the right-hand side are things that are, should be things that show spiritual growth, spiritual health, and spiritual maturity. So if you're lacking in any of those things, then obviously you need to examine those things. I would encourage you to read your text for next week. It's on your, your handout as well as consider how you can get more involved in the church.